0: Hi, everyone. Doug Flutie here. Welcome to the Flutie Flakes cast. And uh, the big talk today is actually uh, the Niners trading up to get to the third spot. Are they looking at a quarterback? What is their quarterback situation? Will they trade Jimmy Garoppolo? Uh, A lot of talk all of a sudden. The number one thing you've got to look at is that Jimmy Garoppolo is a 22 and eight as a starter in San Francisco, that they can win football games with him at quarterback, and they are not looking to replace him immediately. That would be my number one take is that here's a guy that, that can get it done. His biggest challenge has been staying healthy and staying on the field. They're not in a hurry to pull him as their starter, they believe that he is their best opportunity to win football games. That being said, you trade up to the number three spot because you are looking to the future. You are looking to pull a quarterback and get into a situation where you have your, your long-term guy in place and maybe Garoppolo is not your long-term guy. So then everybody say, well, where would Garoppolo go? Is there a trade later on? Patriots come up in your mind and say, hey, you know, will he wind up getting back to New England at some point? That's down the road. As of today, Jimmy Garoppolo is the starting quarterback. I think he gives San Francisco their best chance to get to where they want to get. Um, And then you start looking at the draft. Who do you want to draft in that number three spot? Will Trevor Lawrence? Yes, Trevor Lawrence will go one. Who's the number two guy on the slate? Zach Wilson appears to be that guy for the Jets. Uh, And then Potentially, is it a Mac Jones that might fit with the Kyle Shanahan system? And he is the guy that they're potentially looking at. So say it's Mac Jones. Mac Jones is, again, throwing for Alabama in their pro day. Um, Actually threw once already on a pro day. So I text him and say, hey, hell of a throw on this go route that was on Instagram, whatever. He's like, yeah, I wasn't real happy with the way I threw. And my response to him and my response to anyone is, you know what? Going out and throwing the ball in your underwear doesn't make a quarterback. Tell him to go watch film. And that's my I always go back to watch the film. How did I play? Uh, Big time. You can't measure fourth down situations, fourth quarter situations. Um, Shoot, Justin Fields, the way he responded to being injured in a big time game and bouncing back from that and playing through it. All the little things like that that cannot be measured on a pro day what happens is it's such a everyone is just so scrutinized and under a microscope on these pro days and on what you know usually is a combine i use the phrase you can't you know see the forest for the trees you're getting so close to a situation you're all these minute details that you're analyzing step back take a look at the big picture can the kid play or can the not can he not play and uh, mac jones every adversity was thrown his way when he was at alabama uh, stepped on the field, took over, won championship, you name it, he's done it. He's looked uh, flawless on the field. And that's how I measure quarterbacks. As a freshman, Trevor Lawrence, uh, college football playoffs, played his best football, um, has now won you know, the NCAA championship as a quarterback, all that stuff. Uh, I was at one of the championship games where he found, I don't know how he saw the backside post. There was a coverage where the rotation went a certain way. My read from sitting up in the stands would have been to this side of the field. He noticed something, stepped back up, throws the post in stride. He made big time plays whenever he was called on to do it. Had a playoff game against Ohio State where he got the tar kicked at him, showed his toughness, took off and ran. Uh, the biggest play of the game was like a 65-yard touchdown run. The variable that I have with Justin Fields, I want to know what happened in the Big Ten games. I, I think it was Northwestern and Indiana games. he threw thrown interceptions last year. The year before, he threw 40 touchdowns, three interceptions, and there were these two big-time games where he, he either lost his focus or looked like he was leaving the pocket early and just not as sharp as he had been for the year and a half other than those two games. But I, like I also said, uh, he showed his toughness coming back from injury and, and finding a way to get it done when he was really, really banged up. So those are the, the things that you can't measure in a combine. These guys that go up in a draft because they bench pressed two twenty five so many times or ran a faster 40 time. You want to talk about 40 times the NFL has me on the books is running like a four eight nine forty time. Because the time I got, when I got timed for a 40, I was playing pickup basketball. Actually, it was an intramural basketball game at Boston College, my junior year. The only NFL time that they have on me in a 40, I was playing intramural basketball. One of the coaches came over and say, hey, the, the pro days here for uh, the seniors are running today. Why don't you come on over and run? I had high top sneakers on, ran over, ran a 40 at halftime, came back, played my intramural basketball game. And the reason I did it is because I, I assumed I'd have other 40 times on me. But in my senior year, I wound up signing in the USFL, never going to the combine, never getting pro days and moved on with my career. I actually ran a lot of 40s while I was in Canada and ran mid four or fives. That being said, you, know, you step back, watch the film. Can the kid play? How does he handle adversity? Um, The biggest, I think the biggest part of it, go to the colleges, talk to the coaches, talk to his offensive coordinator. What is his work ethic? How how does he handle um, adversity during a game? How does he handle other players on the team? Does he get along with his players? Is he a leader off the field? All that, especially at the quarterback position. Those are the number one things that come across. When you look at Tom Brady going to Tampa and going to Tampa Bay and winning the Super Bowl was it because he was the most athletic and best quarterback arm strength wise athletic wise no of course not but he had tools he had everything in place in Tampa Bay he went there he was the part of the piece of the puzzle that brought everything else together and there're certain guys that do that that elevate the play of the guys around him and the only way you find out about that stuff is watching the game film and talking to the coaches and being there in person with that individual, there's no way Doug Flutie at five, nine and a half can stand next to a quarterback that's six foot four, take drops on a practice field, throw in your underwear and out and press and out throw these guys. Uh, Zach Wilson rolling to his left. The video that everyone's watching today is uh, you know some 65. He just kind of snaps it. Unbelievable athleticism, unbelievable arm strength, snap the hips, flick the wrist, 60 yards in stride, throws a post. Going the other way across the field, those are impressive throws. Very rarely do they happen in a game, do they? Yes, you've got to have that ability to different arm angles and throw the ball all over the place and all that. But uh, the physical skills is not what set quarterbacks apart and that is what you are measuring when it comes down to combines when it comes down to pro days uh, sure you want to see some things. you can see some things in person you can see hey he's got a little more rotation on that ball than I thought he's throwing that ball he's he's got a stronger arm than and maybe his arm's not quite as strong as we thought all those little things but when it comes down to it there's a lot of guys that could throw the ball a lot harder than Joe Montana did doesn't make him a better quarterback all right, coming up, uh, I have Dan Fouts as my guest today, and I'm very excited to talk to Dan because uh, he was he a was guy that initiated to air it out, air choreo, throw the football all over the field, 4,000-yard passer. Uh, up until what, between 79 and 82, he just lit it up with the San Diego Chargers. The uh, Hall of Fame quarterback. Joe Namath, I believe, was the only guy that threw for over 4,000 yards until Dan Fouts came along. And Dan, uh, fortunate to play in San Diego. We've crossed paths a number of times. Very excited to talk to Dan Fouts coming up. Remember, you can get the Flutie Flakes cast on SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to rate and review. Dan Fouts coming up. Hear what's happening around the globe on World of Basketball. Josh Giddy. It's obviously
1: hard coming in um, as a point guard, especially to a, to a grown man's league, because you kind of got to lead and boss older guys around, which can be hard and, and pretty daunting at times. But
0: my teammates were great. They kind of embraced me and, um, you know, welcomed me with open arms. So it's been a really easy transition. New episodes of World of Basketball, hosted by Fran Fraschilla, are released Thursdays on the SiriusXM app. Well, very excited to have Dan Fouts joining me, Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, San Diego Chargers, not the LA Chargers, San Diego Chargers, Eric Corey all day's 4,000-yard season's throwing it all over the field. Unbelievable career as a broadcaster after and continuing to do great things. Uh, what's going on, Dan? What's going on in your life today? And uh, what's uh, new in your, your world? Well, I'm two days away
1: from getting my second shot. So, and, uh, you know, it's been a, a tough year for everybody, but, uh, you know, if we keep hanging in there and do the right things, uh, we're going to get through this.
0: I mean, obviously, the the thought of freedoms, of, of the security feeling of walking around and being able to do come and go, or uh, that's got to be the exciting side of that, right?
1: I mean, I've been in a restaurant uh, in over a year. I'm not even sure uh, what you're supposed to do now. Do you go and just tell the guy what you want to eat or do you call it in? It is important that, you know, we do – uh not take it lightly because uh it's still there and uh and these different variants are very, very scary.
0: Well, I'm I'm living in Florida, and Florida is has been very open and things are semi-normal here and have been for a while. But I bumped into a guy yesterday that I was talking to who said in his second shot, um, he's a healthcare worker, and you know, it's mandatory to get the shot. He said he just got or a week ago got his second shot, and it put him on his tail for a day or two. So I, just, I don't want to scare you. Just want to warn you. Um, I've had a chance to talk with Warren Moon, had a talk, uh, Kurt Warner, some of the old school quarterbacks, and Roger Staubach. And I get very excited to talk about the old days. And I loved watching you play football and slinging around the field. What was different about Air Coryell days? What were you guys doing that was so different from everybody else?
1: Well, I think the league at that time, as you know, Doug, was still a run-first league. I'll just give you an example of Coriel's philosophy. Training camp. The first running play we put in is a draw play. Okay. <laughs> so think about that. Uh, we would start a game uh, with either a bomb or a draw play because teams defensively uh, weren't ready for what we were doing. Uh, what we were doing is basically what you're seeing today is spreading the field with really superior athletes and challenging the defense. And the other thing about the Eric Coriel offense is that his philosophy was to challenge not only the width of the field, but the length of the field. So if we're backed up on the one yard line. His mindset was the defense has to defend 99 yards. So let's make them defend 99 yards. And the way you do that is you give them the threat of throwing the bomb on every play. So uh, obviously a great, uh, Offense to play and and, uh, to be surrounded by the players I was surrounded by uh, is just phenomenal.
0: When you look at today's game, I, you know, and even though they're throwing the ball 40, 50 times now, it's not what you guys were doing. You guys were airing it out. Like I don't know what yards per completion were, but you were still over sixty percent through that era of of slinging it down the field. What do you what do you see when you look at today's offenses and and that more short yard short efficient pass?
1: Game? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the Bill Walsh influence, uh, the West Coast offense, which is you know more a horizontal offense where uh, you can complete a three yard pass and have the guy run for five more yards and bring up a second and two. So. Uh, he liked the way I did the math there real quick. Uh, you know, th- that's fine. And, and it works. And it's uh, won a lot of championships for a lot of teams. But, you know, if you go back to, you know, you talked about Kurt Warner earlier, Doug. Uh, the greatest show on turf was basically uh, Eric Correale uh, 2.0, because Mike Martz uh, was a tremendous disciple of Coriel's having learned the offense uh, from North Turner when he was with him with the Washington Redskins.
0: See, I, I played for Norv for a couple of years when I was in San Diego, and the difference to me was we blocked things up. You know, he took a lot off my plate because we scanned backs across the formation, very few pure – I mean, maybe your first down West Coast stuff, you know, bang, 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 it's out. But a lot of third down situations – I wasn't really worried about protection too often, that, that we would scan backs, pick things up, and throw the ball up the field, and that's what I loved about Norv.
1: That was a big part of it, obviously, protect the quarterback. But we also like to throw hot. And, uh, you know, if a safety's coming, uh, we're getting rid of that ball to a receiver who's seeing the exact same thing. In fact, I take you back to one game when we played the Cincinnati Bengals. and Hank Bullitt was their defensive coordinator. And uh, we had a play-action pass uh, called. And uh, the first read, though, is if the safety comes, you've got to throw the slant. Well, because he's uh, unaccounted for as far as the blocking scheme is. Well, Hank brought both safeties. And I had never seen that before. Well, I I was alert and I got the ball to Chandler and he ran the rest of the way for the touchdown because there was no safety in the middle of the field. You have to be ready for anything. uh, But that offense made you ready for
0: anything. You had, I mean, obviously we go back to to the Miami playoff game and the game that Winslow had. and all. Who was your most dynamic guy? Who was the guy out of the group? That was the biggest headache on the other side.
1: They all were, really. I mean, you know, you talk about the Miami game. It's called the Killer winslow game, basically. Uh, he had to be a tremendous nightmare for any defense because of his size and speed and skill and desire and meanness that he always seemed to have. And then there's a the beautiful uh, athletic ability of a West Chandler and a John Jefferson. Uh, and then in the backfield, Doug, Doug, Doug had, uh, you know, Chuck Muncy or James Brooks. Little Train James, or you know, you talk about a headache. You need a whole bottle of aspirin for them.
0: I I just gotten into college area. And we were starting, we had a nice little scat back guy named Troy Strafford that played with the Dolphins for a while. And he was a third down back type of guy, could run routes. Were you doing all that with option routes with your back and stuff like that even then in 79 to 82?
1: Yeah, we were because uh, especially in 78 and 79, we had Lydell Mitchell with us.
0: Oh, geez. I loved him.
1: Uh, We played the Raiders one afternoon in Oakland, and we had a a 12-minute 20-play drive that went 80 yards a 20-play drive, I think Lydell touched the ball 15 times, either by a handoff or an option route.
0: I had a game in, in my Canadian days where uh, I was in Calgary. No, I'm sorry, I was in Toronto. We were playing at Edmonton, and Edmonton's defense was the biggest pain in the neck for me up there. They did the best job of matching things up and switching things off. And I finally found a formation where I could get our little scat back on their middle linebacker consistently. And he would be the fourth receiver to the field. And I called the same option route to Mike Pinball Clemens, eight plays in a row. And we had eight completions and we were in the end zone. And I had to call a timeout. Well, we didn't call a timeout because you only had one. I had two guys at different times pretend they were injured (laughs) to give them a break so I could come back and run the same play. When you find something, you go with it. I mean, it's funny, I was talking with, with Warren Moon we about CFL days, and we talk about old locker rooms. What is the maybe the most beat-up old locker room you can think of?
1: Uh, I had to be in Cleveland at the that uh, old uh, mistake by the Lake Stadium. No, it's a baseball stadium, basically, and the, and the lockers were like this this wide. Four or five shower heads for all of us, and only had, two of them had hot water, so... You know,
0: <laughs> it sounds like Winnipeg to me. Winnipeg would turn their hot water off intentionally because they were trying to save money, but only two out of the six shower heads work. How about cigarettes in the locker room?
1: Well, cigarettes and cigars, you know, I mean, uh, every day uh, I would, you know, I had a nice little reclining chair by my locker and I'm sure you were in the same corner there in San Diego Stadium and, and we would have our meetings in the morning and we'd have a two hour lunch break or so before we go to practice. And, you know, I personally would sit in my locker, in my recliner, and and uh, study my plays and fire up a stogie. So we had coaches on the sidelines, uh, you know, that were smoking cigarettes. Uh, Jim Hannafin was uh, famous for smokers. Tommy Prothrow, our head coach back in the mid '70s, he was uh, he was a chimney.
0: So you're over there. You know, timeout. Crucial situation. Two minute situation. Fourth and eighteen. And Hannafin's got a, a cigarette blowing smoke in your face. Well,
1: and uh, my good buddy, Ed White, my right guard, uh, he liked to smoke too. And, it, you know, a lot of guys in the locker room did. I mean, that was just the norm that, in those days. And uh, we would have one of those drives where we'd start on the 20-yard line and, and we needed to go down and get a touchdown. And Ed would slide over to Hannafin and say, Hey, coach, uh, uh, give me a hit. And Ed would, Ed would take a, a puff of the cigarette and be running out to the huddle and smoke and be coming out of his helmet. And I
0: tell the boys, I say, "Hey, boys, big heads ready." <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I look at the players today, and it's they're so locked in. I mean, nutrition—it starts in high school now with these guys in their college. I, I cover Notre Dame football, and I go to—they've got a whole thing set up where these guys get their pre-workout shakes, their post-workout uh, smoothies, whatever it is. And you know, I I was stopping at McDonald's on the way to the stadium. You know, it just it amazes me. I was I did a little bit you know before you came on on um, pro days and workout days as opposed to watching the game film on these kids.
1: Well, it's just the way it is. I mean, uh, it, it's when we played is was different than when guys like unitis and Bart Starr played. You know, a lot of those guys in, in in that era had to work for a living in the off season because they weren't making much. Uh, to begin with, as an NFL player, you know, I worked in the off season early in my career. My first contract, Doug, was uh, for twenty three thousand dollars. I was worth every penny.
0: Roger Stallback, Very similar talk. Very similar situation. Twenty five K, I think his first contract was. So they owe you money. They owe you two great from those days. <laughs> Unitas. I had I had a talk with the. Um, with John Yaninis years and years ago, I was a big Baltimore Colts fan. That's why I got excited when you mentioned Lydell Mitchell. Um, was he in San Diego with you? He had the corner
1: locker room and I had the corner locker and I had the one right next to him. And uh, I mean, Doug, let me tell you, I, I grew up in San Francisco. Uh, my dad was the voice of the 49ers. So I got to be on the sidelines uh, as a ball boy for the 49ers throughout high school. And I would always pick the, four, the uh, opponent's sideline because... I could see Unitas or I could see Starr or, or Gale Sayers or uh, Roman Gabriel. Go on down the list, Deacon Jones. I mean, all the great ones that would come into Keysar Stadium. Uh, I was uh, privileged to be on that sideline. So all of a sudden, you know, here I am, a 21, 22-year-old rookie in San Diego. And I look over there, and there's Johnny. And- he Johnny- <laughs> you know, was, was great to me, too. You know, he would let me buy him beers, you know, which was good. And then uh, tell me the little nuances that uh, the coaches have no idea about. Because when you're in that pocket, or go to that line of scrimmage and you're scanning the defense. What do you look for? Well, Johnny, Hugh would tell me what to look for. Boy, I tell you, I wish I had him for 10 years instead of just that one.
0: My parents were from the Baltimore area and I was maybe a five-year-old kid, three to five years old. And we would go to the Colts training camp. I remember John Unitas throwing to Willie Richardson and on the sideline right in front of me. The ball was a little overthrown, I thought. And it bounced and it rolled to me and I flipped it back to Willie. Willie's walking back to the huddle and Unitas is lighting him up for he stopped running. He's like, why'd you stop running, Willie? That was perfect. You know, it was right on the mark. But that was my John Unitas. The other John Unitas story I had was... He said, you know, it was the end of his career, went out to San Diego and he thought, you know, I got to be a leader here. I'm going to hang out with the guys and all the guys would disappear into this room after practice. And he's like, OK, you know, I, I can get along with the guys, probably go in having a beer. And uh, he goes in and all the guys are smoking weed in a in a uh, one of the, the meeting rooms. And he said, that's when I realized I was in San Diego. I wasn't. in. Well, not
1: not all of us were in that room. Doug. I remember him telling me, he says, boy, they, they, those boys are smoking a lot of rope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you say your dad your dad was in broadcast. Is that how you transitioned? How did how did your transition to the broadcast booth go?
1: Well, you know, uh, when I wasn't on the sidelines, I'd be in the booth with my dad. And in, in those days, uh, each team's announcer did a half of the game. So if the 49ers are playing the Packers, my dad, uh, Keysar, my dad would do the first half, and then Ray Scott would do the second half. Uh, when it was the Colts, you remember uh, Chuck Thompson, right? Okay, well, I met Chuck Thompson when I'm 15 years old in the booth next to my dad. And I was keeping the interlink scores. Uh, which is a a direct line to all the stadiums in the league. And if San Francisco, the 49ers had a score, I would hit the button and say, this is San Francisco calling. Uh, We have a score, 49ers, seven, bears, nothing. John John Brody, seven-yard pass to Dave Parks, extra point by Tommy Davis, 5.15 to go in the first quarter. San Francisco, seven, Chicago, nothing. And that was really... uh, the start of my broadcasting because I was having to give the scores but you also had to take the scores when they were coming in from other other uh, stadiums it was uh, a really lot of fun and I Doug, I got $25 for
0: each game that I mean the opportunity to do that at a young age and being around your dad the thing that fascinated me about your broadcast career more than anything was correct me if i'm wrong didn't you transition and do a little play-by-play as well yeah we tried that
1: too <laughs> you yeah. know uh, I, I worked with Tim Brandt, as you know, and uh, uh, we had a tremendous uh, couple of years together. But uh, I think when you think back on, you know, I, I did broadcasting and I'd still like to get back into it for 32 years. And I worked with, you talk about a Hall of Fame list of broadcasters from, from the, and they're all first name guys. OK, there's Brent, there's Al, there's Keith, there's Dick. You go on down the list, there's Vern. Uh, I worked with the very best and they were absolutely the very best and and having 10 years with Ion Eagle at CBS, I've been very blessed in that career as well.
0: Well, I've been lucky as well. I've I've worked with some great people in broadcast and, and the ability to maybe start doing this even more of the podcast. I am thoroughly enjoying talking to guys that I think are legends of the game and and guys that I idolize growing up and, and watch play. Uh, let's uh, move a little forward to, to, the, to the Chargers, the, the leaving of San Diego. First of all, how badly does San Diego miss a football team? Well, you know what
1: uh, the Chargers brought to the city of San Diego is a big league feeling. Uh, before that, there was just the minor league uh, San Diego Padres played on the you know, Pacific Coast League. So uh, moving to, to San Diego uh, transformed the city from a you know, military town, a retirement town, a, a border town, if you will, and if you, you know, and I know, you know, the geography of, of San Diego, Doug, you have to the south is Mexico, to the west is the ocean, to the east is the desert and to the uh, north is the L.A. Uh, area. So uh, it's really a very isolated part of the country if you look at it that way. And uh, so the feeling of the, the fans and, you know, it as well as anybody, the Charger backer fans are phenomenal. Uh, win or lose, draw, whatever. They were there for us. And, um, you know, I feel badly for uh, the fans of San Diego. Uh, But you know what I tell people that uh, still complain about it and are still mad about it, and rightfully so, is, okay, they can take the team, but they can't take our memories. And don't forget that. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, that gives them some type of solace.
0: Well I keep all my charges. I still got charger sweats and jerseys and all that i'm saving them maybe someday they'll be worth something if if the chargers never do return. i'm hoping that they do. What about justin uh herbert up in um, up up with the chargers now what do you What do you think of him at, at quarterback? Well, I
1: think it's phenomenal, and I like what the chargers have been doing uh, in free agencies they've been building a wall in front of them and and rightfully so uh the kid is uh, you know, he's got it all right now. I mean, he's, he's a brilliant young man, uh, you know, graduated early at Oregon, became a tutor for other students at Oregon. Um, and then the physical part of it is just uh, uh, beyond, uh, you know, anybody's expectations in Los Angeles. Uh, I don't think they were quite ready for the uh, poise, the competitiveness, um, the smarts of, uh, and the talent of, of Justin Herbert. He's got a tremendous future.
0: See, you talk about the smarts at the quarterback position. And I, and I was talking earlier about, you know, all these camps, all these uh, combine days, you know, 90% of quarterbacking is in the head. I mean, what they do today, I, I mentioned to you, I was excited when when I had things blocked up and I didn't really have to worry about a protection, but, you know, you still had your hots and your change. Of, all the things that go on at the line of scrimmage that these kids do have done since their college days.
1: Yeah, you know, the one thing that, that uh, they have a, a shotgun. And, and I'm not so sure that the shotgun uh, is really that much of an advantage over taking it from under center. Uh, because from under center, you have a, a better perspective of the, the angle of the safety here, that linebacker. I, I, there's so many times in a game, uh, I'll just give you an example. We played the Steelers uh, back in Pittsburgh, and it's, uh, we're on about the seven-yard line. And we've got a throwback screen to, to Winslow. Uh, and I'm looking at Robin Cole, the weak side linebacker, who's the only guy that I'm concerned about on that play, because uh, if he drops back into it, then I, I, I've got to scramble here. I've got something else that i got to go to, but I see his eyes are almost bugging out of his face mask because he's coming. Okay. So I know he's coming. I've got to get my butt out of there. Fake to Muncie spin around and throw the ball to uh, Winslow. And uh, those are the things that you notice when you're at the line of scrimmage, more so than when you're in the shotgun looking between the center's legs, uh, waiting to catch the ball.
0: Looking to the sideline for audibles. Or or on their, you know, (laughs) looking at their... (laughs) On their wristband. I got old. I played till I was 43. I couldn't read the wristband anymore. (laughs) My eyes were going and it was dark in the huddle. (laughs) I love being in shotgun because of the, the distance from the O-line. It gave me a little more vision and all that. But the biggest pain in the neck are hots. Because from under center, the hot, uh, you can throw right on your first step. You can throw on the second and just come over the top. More than waiting for the ball, it's taking your eyes. Say you're hot off two to the strong side. On the snap of the ball in shotgun, where are your eyes? They're down. They're down. Did they come? Did they rotate over? Did the backside guy slide over to take that away? So you lose vision for that fraction of a second. And
1: the other thing that United's taught me, Doug, I think you like this, is that as you're going back to pass, <clears throat> you can move the safety. So safety is the guys you always got to worry about. And you can, you know, nod here, nod there. They don't look here. <laughs> and the other thing that if you ever watch defensive backs in practice, and they're and the defensive back coach is doing the wave drill, what's he doing? Mm-hmm. He's moving his shoulder. Yeah, move. And they go like that. You move the shoulders up, they go like that. Okay. It's just, you know, there's a lot of those little things we talked about
0: earlier. But well, that, you know, now that you mention it, I picture Unitas with the big pump fake yeah. and the, the like, he would bring it down the round with his pump fake. And you were very similar. I, I Right now in my head, I can picture five or six of your pump fakes and it's deliberate, very distinct, big pump fake, big move of the arm and boom, turn around, go the other way. And I think some of that stuff is lost. We became especially West Coast offense because West Coast was rhythm, five step, ba 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 ball out. You know, quick decision, bang. Those six to eight yard passes, and it's your footwork is always really, really dialed into the depth of the route. Where maybe in your day, yes, I'm sure there was plenty of that, but the drift, the move, the head and shoulders.
1: Well, in 1976, my fourth year, my offensive coordinator was Bill Walsh. OK, so we I was schooled in that offense, the West Coast offense, before it was even called the West Coast offense. And so I studied Kenny Anderson. I studied Greg Cook because Walsh came from Cincinnati. And to watch those guys uh, operate that offense was a thing of beauty. And so I've got this background in the West Coast offense. And now Coriel comes two years later. Now I've got the best of both worlds. And that's, you know, we talked earlier about stretching the field horizontally. That's Walsh. Vertically, that's Corio.
0: I can picture for me when I needed a play. I got dialed into some of the West Coast. So when I was in Buffalo, it was it was a lot of that. And um, I would count my steps in my head on my three-step and five-step drops. <laughs> it's like, what do you do? You know, why are you counting? It's like I'm in practice because you want to be in that rhythm and you want the ball out on time on the – whether it's a slant, whether it's a speed cutout, whatever it might be. But when the game's on the line, it came back to playing football, moving people with your eyes, little head and shoulder fake, forcing something up the field occasionally. I miss those days. I miss seeing you air it out. You had some weapons at your disposal that that made it so much fun to watch. Yeah, I'm a fan and uh, I love talking football. I love talking X and O's. So I just want to thank you for taking the time, Dan. This is this has been awesome for me.
1: Anytime, Doug. I appreciate you having me on. Hello,
0: everyone. This is Bruce Murray, and I'd love you to join me on my podcast, Going Long, where every week we talk to the sports stars themselves, like NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre. I was probably better at baseball than I was at football. And the people that love them, like TV legend
1: George Went. I thought about changing to be a cup fan as a career move. And sports casting icon Linda Cohen. I never thought I'd still be doing it at this point in time. You can listen to Going Long every Thursday on the SiriusXM app and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Well, as always, that's a lot of fun for me to go down memory lane because I feel like a little kid when I'm talking to a guy like Dan Fouts, uh, Roger Staubach. before talking about those days. I just picture myself being that little kid watching these guys on TV. And Dan actually was a lot closer to my year. I was in college when when he was still lighting it up. Um, so this past weekend, I had the opportunity to uh, go to Tim Tebow's golf tournament at Sawgrass up in the Jacksonville area uh, Florida. And just, it was kind of like a class reunion. You get together with everybody, Danny Warfel, uh, Marcus Allen. I think we had five Heisman trophy winners, Eddie George and Tim himself, uh, as well, Tim Brown. Now, now Tim Brown, Heisman trophy winner, Notre Dame hall of famer, Tim Brown, is a good little golfer. And Tim is so excited to play at Sawgrass because he's never played there before. And the 17th is an Island green. It was only about 125 yard shot for us. They made it nice and easy, but Timmy Brown had talked about playing there forever. And so he finally gets his chance to play at Sawgrass. And on 17, he holes out hole in one for Tim Brown. Talk of the tournament. Now knowing Tim, he probably took the club. He was going to hit on that shot, went to the driving range all morning, hit 100 shots, dialed it in, and went and nailed the shot and, and got his hole-in-one. But as I said, uh, Timmy's doing great things. We, we all to get together uh, every year. Unfortunately, we didn't have the audience that we usually have at that, that tournament because of uh, COVID. It was still a great outing, a lot of fun, raised a lot of money, had some sense of normalcy being around the guys and, and being a big-class reunion with, with all our good friends that, that support the Tim Tebow Foundation. All right, before we get out of here, uh, Tom, what do you have for Twitter questions this week? All right, Doug, and as we've been doing it every week, we'll continue to do this. Now, this one's going to put you on the spot, uh, and I hate to do this to you, but who was your favorite wide receiver to throw to in Buffalo? All due respect to Andre Reed, it was Eric Moulds. Andre was, towards the end of his career, Hall of Famer, unbelievable career, and Andre and I are still close. We actually reconnected at Super Bowl this year. Andre... plays in the flag football game with me every year or has the last few years anyway, and hit him for a couple of touchdowns. Andre had fun, but Eric molds was the most dominant receiver that I had ever played with because he was in the prime of his career. He was a guy that if he was one-on-one, the ball is going to Eric and I'm throwing it your way. I'm putting it in a spot where maybe you got a shot at it, but I trusted him that he was going to get it or no one was going to get it. We get an interference call and he was a game changer for me. And he, I always say this, Eric Molds has got me to my, to my pro bowl. He's amazing, unbelievable athlete. Just put it up, give him a chance. And I still wish I had found a way. He had a 270-yard game. It was a playoff game against the Dolphins. We got down close at the end of the game. And they were just bracketing Eric on the weak side. And I could not find a way to throw the ball. I I was trying to manufacture another way to throw it to him down there. We'd already done it a number of times. And uh, I think we needed to get him out of that exposition, move him in motion, and put him in the middle of the field somewhere. But I wish I had gotten one more completion to Eric Moulds down on the goal line versus Miami. Let's hope uh, Andre Reid doesn't listen to this week's episode, for your sake. <laughs> uh, last one here, and just keep tweeting your questions at Doug Flutie. Oh, this one's more big picture kind of, Doug, where do you see the direction of football going when it comes to salaries and potential rule changes as the game evolves? Well, salaries are exploding. They've exploded. I thought they exploded towards the end of my career. And I was fortunate to sign a couple of big contracts, but it's just nothing compared to today. You know, the money involved, The, the it shows you the love of football that this country has. And And I think as far as rules of the game, doing things to make it safer has been the norm or been the direction. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, in talking to Dan Fouts, I'm sure he and I would both love to get on the field today and not get hit below the waist or hit in the head and and have some opportunities to air it out. He Remember, now, he threw for his 4,000-yard seasons and all that when the rules were they could ba- basically mug a receiver going down the field. So with the receivers running as freely as they do today, you know, the, the direction of the game – is to make it safer how you do that in what respects the below all the below the waist stuff is going to someday be taken out. Um, I tell you, I had a vision of when esports started to become popular and you've got arenas, you got people filling arenas to go watch people play video games. Now, is there a day where there are three dimensional football players out there on the field being controlled on a joystick up in a press box or on a sideline so that the injuries are never happening I don't know. There's some variable of that somewhere in between esports and real football. That there is another uh maybe it's a whole nother ball game that that gets developed. But with the animation abilities and the things that go on now today and the the younger generation and their love for video game sports, um, it may not be too far away. Thanks again for listening and uh every week. Just keep the Twitter questions coming and uh, don't forget to download uh, your podcast at SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you rate and review. Thanks for listening. SiriusXM Podcasts.